Today, I'm talking to the co-host of the Positive Thin Pact podcast, a podcast I happen to be the other co-host of. That's right. Today, I'm talking to my good friend, Marjorie Arnold. I'm Aiden Nepom, and this is The Change Podcast. Marjorie, welcome to The Changed Podcast, a change from the Positive Thin Pact podcast. It sure is. <laughs> and I have listened to every episode and I love your podcast. I love that you love my podcast. I love our podcast too. Um, I'm really happy that you're here because I think it's going to be um, exciting to have Listeners of Positive Thin Pact have an opportunity to get to know you in a totally different capacity. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today, which instead of being about our normal subject matter, is instead about this bigger concept of change. But we'll get to that. Uh, because the first thing that I want to talk about right now is Positive Thin Pact. So not all the listeners of the Changed podcast have heard Positive Thin Pact. Do you want to tell people what that podcast is all about? Well, um, we haven't done any episodes in a while, but it's about me trying different diets and trying to kind of game my brain so that I um, am always kind of in a new cycle for losing weight because it seems like um, when you go on a diet, it's great at the beginning and then it just kind of gets old or gets boring or gets, you know, hard and I tend to stop. <laughs> so... This was uh, a concept where I, you know, instead of stopping, would just go on to the next one. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was this w wacky idea, a wild and crazy idea that um, by you gaming your brain and doing that with the help of not a food expert, not a health expert, not a doctor, not a psychiatrist, but a play centered person like I you know your own personal improviser that that was this idea that somehow we would be able to get you to a place where instead of falling into old patterns you would be able to break them um what do you think we discovered over the course of the journey that we took so far I mean the positive thin pack's been on hiatus as you mentioned since the first few months of covid um I don't know if we're coming back to it or not. We talk about coming back to it often. Um, but the question that on my mind is like, we took a journey. We tried a bunch of stuff. Did it work? What do you think? Um, I think uh, we ended up doing it for, I don't know, about nine months or so. And we tried the things. And um, I think I ended up losing probably less than 10 pounds from it. And Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if those are 10 pounds I would have lost anyway, or if, uh, or if, you know, it was because we were trying things. Um, I think ultimately it was me doing a lot of dieting and I think it brought to the forefront the thing I hate most about dieting, which is being so self-aware and conscious of what I eat. And just constantly yeah, thinking about that's food. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think that I was kind of in that mode. Yeah, it became the center of everything for us too. So I've, you know, it's like 
being your friend, being your collaborator on this project, and then also watching you go on that journey was like, the whole time as your friend, I'm like, is this working? I don't feel like this is helping your health, which as your friend is the only thing I care about, you know? And so, (laughs) and so that's sort of been my thought around, well, when we were doing it, but there were things about it that were super fun to do and that might be worth revisiting, like getting to read cool articles and talk to, we had one expert come on a particular diet company. It was fun talking to her. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think I'd like to dig more into why this, didn't work for me ultimately, uh, as far as, you know, cause none of the diets ultimately really worked. None of them did what the diet said it was going to do. And I think that a lot of these, uh, publishers of diets, and I think a lot of, uh, diet creators, um, diet hawkers, anybody in this industry that tells you, if you just do this, you're going to be thin and happy. Um, I don't think they really take the human aspect into it which is, you know, a lot of times when you have a lot of weight to lose, there's a reason for it. You know, you've got severe issues surrounding food and no quick cure is really going to do that. And I know you hear that as well, but I think ultimately we proved that to be true. Yeah, You got to deal with your stuff. (laughs) Well, you got to deal with your stuff. You know, I... I'm a big believer in you gotta you have to love yourself enough to do good things for yourself. And that's a much bigger journey than as you mentioned, um, somebody being like, just stop eating sugar. Right. Yeah, because uh <laughs> you know that saying, wherever you go, there you are. I think that's true for no matter what you weigh, there you are. I mean, um, and I know for me, I, I don't know if this is true for everybody that has a weight problem. Um, I have issues with, with food, with uh, physical health that causes weight loss, I mean, weight gain with, and makes it difficult to lose weight, um, with, you know, psychological issues from when I was growing up, from, you know, there's just, it's a lot. And I think to pin all your hopes on lose 10 pounds in 10 days is kind of, (laughs) it's a lot to put on that, you know, Um, (laughs) or to think that, Hey, and if, if I lose 10 pounds, I'm suddenly going to be happy because you know, that it doesn't make you less yourself. And if you're already not a happy person, then uh, it tends to just kind of highlight problems. I, I went years ago um, to one of those places in Durham where you, which there's a lot of places in Durham, North Carolina, where you kind of, you know, it's a weight loss clinic type of situation. And I remember them cautioning us that uh, once you get over the food addiction, it's really just like any other addiction in that you tend to adopt another one. Uh, They said, more often than not, mm. for food addicts, you tend to go towards sex addiction, addiction and or alcoholism. So, um, you know, but but wow, it's because it's such a drastic change seeing your new self in the mirror, and you probably are not going to be prepared for that if you lose weight quickly. So, we recorded our last episode of Positive Thin Pact almost. Not a year ago, but almost a year ago. 
What has changed for you since we stopped recording episodes of Positive Thin Pact regarding the impetus for recording Positive Thin Pact? So what has changed for me is COVID scared the bejeebers out of me. Um, I started reading articles that overweight people and obese, especially morbidly obese people, were dying from COVID at the same rate as elderly people in that it was much higher than normal. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though my doctors consider me relatively healthy for a fat person, um, you know, it scared me. So uh, last May, I talked to my doctor about doing something to kind of lose weight quicker instead of just doing this all on my own. Um, Surgery for me is still not an option. I don't have insurance that covers it. Mm -hmm. I don't have my head on straight, I think, to deal with the absolute sudden weight loss that it would give me. And um, if you do research, it usually only works about long-term about half the time. So, um, those are not odds, you know, I'm a data person. So this, these are not odds that I like for a lot of money, (laughs) um, and permanent alteration of my body. Uh, and mistakes are usually, I don't know the people I've known mistakes send you up in the emergency room. So anyway, so I talked to my doctor and I started taking, uh, prescriptions to lose weight. Um, I took I started out with Sasenda, which is a, a shot that you give yourself every day, and it's basically a mega dose of a diabetic medication, and it's wildly expensive. And I did that uh, until probably the end of December, and I just could not afford it anymore. Um, and then I started taking something called Ribelsis, which is specifically for diabetes and was prescribed to me off-label. Red Belsis? Ribelsis, yes. <laughs> and it's a oh, pill. Ribelsis. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I think they're just making up names for fun now. Red Bells Us, <laughs> uh, Blue Bells Us, Pink Bells Us. <laughs> no, it's R Y B E L. I guess that sounds like medication for something else. I yeah, I don't. It was a strange. Oh, I got it. Like the branded. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Why? Like, I'm sure like there's, with I'm a, sure there's a scientific explanation. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I'm sure that's what the focus group came up with that day. <laughs> um, but anyway, it is a diabetic <laughs> medication. It's basically a lower dosage of the same drug that's found in Sasenda. And um, it's been working. It's continued to work. So, um, but it's it's way less expensive. And, um, it, it, and so at this point you've lost, you've lost weight. You, I mean, I can see it in your face. I have lost weight, uh, since last January, I guess I've lost about 60 pounds. Um, which to me is kind of slow. Wow. We're looking at it, you know, a little less than a pound a week, um, which is, I think how I'm going to be successful, uh, with this, with this thing. And with losing weight is, is to do it slow mm-hmm. so that I kind of get used to myself. I think it's helped me being, I've been working from home for a year, uh, like a lot of other people. And I think that's helped because along the way, I really don't have anybody commenting on my body, which is one of the things that tends to put me yeah. into a tailspin. 
So, um, you know, I think that that's an aspect of the way of anybody's health journey that people tend to, um, forget about like really good intended thing to do is to say you've lost a lot of weight and you look amazing because you've lost a lot of weight. But at the same time, there's the flip side of that, which is like, oh, what does that mean for before the weight loss? And as, does our relationship hang on the balance of what I look like? And um, also you're looking at me, which is a just that alone, you know, I've had many conversations with my loved ones over the years, which makes it tricky because I want people to give me compliments. I love compliments. And at the same time, I don't want to feel like my appearance is the thing that matters most. So it, I think, I think that's an aspect of anybody's health journey that is really hard to navigate. What do you think people, what do you think is best? Like to pretend they don't see anything? I honestly think it's best to just go with, you know, not commenting on people's bodies. Um, Mm -hmm. I personally feel that way. I think that no matter how well-intentioned you are, um, you know, it can come off as, as very, uh, gazy. And, and I think for me personally, and I've had this discussion with my therapist many times, um, weight has been kind of, the thing I've done to uh, insulate myself from attention from other people. And uh, cause often, you know, the bigger a person is, the more invisible they are in the room. And, um, and so I think that that's kind of my uh, protective padding, if you will. And- I just had this thought, you know, you know, that expression, the elephant in the room, do you think that there's, <laughs> I've never, ever had this thought before, but it's that huge thing that nobody's talking about and pretending like it's invisible. It's like, are we treating human beings like elephants in the room? I I don't know. I hope that's not an offensive question. It just popped into my head as you were talking. It doesn't offend me. Uh, I don't know. I can't speak for every fat, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't offend me, but at the same time, I think it's true. I think that, you know, we don't look, look at how we portray fat people on TV, like on the news, we show their stomachs. We don't even show their heads or their faces. All we show is their torso. Like these people walking down the street are their fat. Um, It's, it's Mm. absolutely disheartening that this is how, overweight people are seen in the world as nothing but their stomachs. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, I don't know if that's the origin of the expression, but I do feel like we're treating human beings like that. And I feel like a lot of people that aren't normally ist or don't believe in isms or whatever, um, really are not body positive about others. Uh, And I'll be honest, I grew up in the 80s. I find myself thinking that way sometimes too. You know, um, I don't Mm -hmm. speak it out loud, but yeah, those thoughts are in my head sometimes. Like, wow, that's not flattering at all. Or that person shouldn't be wearing that, you know, crop tee. And a lot of people these days really don't have that shame. (laughs) And that's good. I wish uh, I could be more like that. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, so so the update is that you have chosen to take a medication with the help of your doctor in order to try and lose some weight so that the comorbidity associated with weight and COVID is less of a factor in your level of risk. Is that what I'm understanding? That is exactly that is exactly what prompted me to do it. That's kind of what prompts me to stay on it. Um, it's working, so I'll probably continue to do it uh, even post COVID. Um, so, you know, I. But I, I think it it was not a decision I took lightly. It's not something I recommend for everybody. I haven't gone the route of being on amphetamines. Yeah. I think that's one thing that's, that's kind of a barrier I still don't really want to cross. Um, because, <laughs> uh, I, I don't always know. think of, I mean, I always think of that Saved by the Bell episode, you know, with Jesse, uh, and the having pills. taken amphetamines to try and study. <laughs> oh, I thought she was taking caffeine Yeah, pills. the, like, I'm so excited. Oh, whatever. Oh, no, you're right. I'm thinking of Family Ties and it's Alex P. Keaton on amphetamines. He gets the diet pills from from Mallory's friend or whatever. Um, or Jennifer's friend. I can't remember. You know what? These, these are old references. No one's watching these shows anymore. <laughs> well, so thank you for sharing the update. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about where you are currently? Fans of the Positive Thin Pact? Um. They may hear more from me in the future, but uh, right now I'm not really dieting or worrying about food. I'm just kind of, uh, it's it's happening naturally in response to the medication. And um, I'm just going to continue right down that path for the foreseeable future until situations change. And just for listeners of Positive Thin Pact, Marjorie and I have talked about this. If the show comes back, which I think it might, it'll be in a different shape of show. Like the the initial premise of trying to do a different diet every week, I think our discovery was that's not a great choice. So in terms of longevity and health and mental well-being. So I think if it were to come back, which it could and maybe will, um, it'll it'll look different. So if you have thoughts about what would be cool to listen to, what inspires you or what you find interesting, certainly email positivethinpact at gmail.com with your ideas for what would make for a wonderful second changed version of Positive Thin Pact. Absolutely. I would love to hear from our listeners on this. So let's shift gears a little bit. And I want to ask you about this other concept, this broader concept of change just in general terms like um it's a big word filled with meaning but when you hear the word change what comes up for you like what Um, thoughts come up for you i think for me personally it's things that have altered my life in some way um Mm -hmm. it's a situation that's happened and as a result i'm a different person coming out of it and when you think about those moments, are those hard moments to to process, or are you one of those people that's like everything changed and it was awesome? <laughs> well, some changes are like that, um, but I'm probably more the former. Um, change is is pretty difficult, and I think it's difficult for most people, and um, 
and yeah, there's some positive changes. Some positive changes, I think, are. Yeah, but I think with everything, even you know, good, bad, or ugly that's happened to me, I can look back and and see that there has been some positive outcome, no matter how bad the change was that resulted from it. Well, so listeners of Positive Thin Pact know you as co-host of that show and subject of the journey of that show. And now listeners of this podcast know that about you as well. But that's not the only thing you do with your time and your life. Um, You're also, like you said, a big data nerd. You do all kinds of stuff with spreadsheets and data and databases, things I don't understand. Um, (laughs) How much do you find I love me a good spreadsheet. (laughs) How much do you find that your... um, analysis of stuff relates to your relationship with the concept of change or does it? No, it absolutely does. And I think that's one of the reasons it takes me a while to process something, some change or some incident or something that most people would, you know, instantly get through. I have to kind of judge it from all the angles and kind of really think about it a while before I decide how I feel about something. Interesting. Yeah. I wondered about that because it's when you're processing, uh, like when you're planning ahead, you, there's all, all kinds of stuff you can do with spreadsheets and data tables. And there's like so much you can do when you're planning ahead. And then ultimately we only control 10%, I think is what studies say, 10% of what happens on any given day. And so I find this, you know, the way we use data to look ahead and then what actually happens, like, is there a way to process all of what actually happens versus what you think is going to happen when you're looking at data? And my question might sound totally dumb because I don't understand spreadsheets in the way that you do. Um, I don't know about that. I, I think that ultimately, uh, you know, we like to think that we can predict the future and that we are in total control over what happens to us. Um, as you know, I also don't believe that at all. I think, mm-hmm. and this is probably an unpopular opinion too. I think at the end of the day, I tend to side with the scientists that believe we're all just a bunch of chemicals and free wills, kind of an illusion. And, um, <laughs> um, And there are scientists that believe this. Uh, You know, I'm always joking around about how we live in a simulation. And and I know this sounds a little woo-woo and out there, but it, it just, because, I don't know, I see too many coincidences in the world for them to truly be coincidences. I don't necessarily believe in random. I think that there are patterns in this world that are too large for the human brain to comprehend. And um, uh-huh. so we don't, we don't see it. I think the best we can hope for is training ourselves to get pretty good at kind of internally calculating probabilities and statistics. And I think that's something yeah. because I'm such a logical, rational person normally, that's something I, I can do. Uh, I think that's why you usually tell me I'm a little psychic. Um, 
which I don't believe in that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I just think that I, you know, <laughs> I have honed my logical reasoning ability a lot. Um, but even that kind of my emotions get in the way of that sometimes often. Um, <laughs> I mean, because so, at the end of the day, you're still a human being. Right. And not exactly. a data robot. No. But I do think um, that the ability to analyze and predict and pattern recognition is just like a hugely important skill. Um, it's true when it comes to communication skills, when it comes to leading teams, all of those things. When it comes to the improv stage, pattern recognition is the name of the game. So I think it makes a ton of sense that if you're really good at pattern recognition, that you, which you are, that you do, you come off as psychic or brilliant or genius because you can see things happening because of the patterns that typically lead down those paths. Yeah. Um, and this may be why I don't necessarily enjoy improv as much as the next guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, there's a lot of times I can see things coming or, you know, it's like, oh, right. well, now they're going to sing this, you know, and... <laughs> Mm -hmm. I just, yeah. And, and sometimes it gets tedious for me, although I recognize that you're hilarious and you're one of the best improvisers and I do like to watch you most of the time. Um, well, that is largely unnecessary compliment, but I will accept them. Thank you. Well, um, I would love to hear, I know that uh, you have identified a moment in time to share a story from your past, a fork in the road moment of yours or a pivotal moment. Um, and I would love it if you would share your story with the Change Podcast listeners. Okay. Um, and let's see if I can get through this without crying. Um, so, you're, you're I, you know, when you were space. asking... <laughs> When you were asking, yeah, the interwebs, they're safe. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> when I think of safe spaces, <laughs> the internet's my go-to. <laughs> um, no, really. Um, All right. That's so totally fair. Yeah, about... that's totally fair. <laughs> when you were talking about uh, change and it being, um, you know, how, how do you think of change? And I said that I think of it as something that has altered my life in, in one way, shape or form. I think, uh, the most life altering thing that has happened to me was my mother's cancer diagnosis and subsequent death. Um, my mom died when I was 24 and, um, I've actually, there's a book called Motherless Daughters um, that I read that uh, she said something along the lines of, if your mom dies when you're between the ages of 13 and 23, I think she said, um, and I know I was 24, but I think it's close enough to 23, um, that it's, it's like you've lived two lives. And I think for me, that's very, very true. Um, my mother was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer when I was 20 and I'm an only child and I uh, have divorced parents. And so my mom was a single parent and um, I mean, they had an idyllic divorce in that, you know, I was at the forefront of their, of every decision they made. They 
stayed very good friends and all that stuff. But still, it wasn't like my dad was going to get involved in my mom's care. You know, um, it was it was on me. And um, at the time that she was diagnosed, she did not have a job. She had been laid off a few months before, maybe almost a year. I don't know. She had been temping. And um, back then that was a little more precarious than, you know, it is now. Uh, There were no benefits. There was nothing. And so I could tell looking at her before she told me about her diagnosis that something was wrong. I I used to tell her, you know, I think you need to adjust your bra or something because something's going on there. And um, I remember when she, she made an appointment with a clinic with like a free clinic kind of situation at the County hospital to, um, to see, to see somebody because she knew something was up. Um, And she went in, in May of, of that year. And she told me, and, and this doesn't happen now. You have to understand that this was like the, the early nineties. And at that point in time, we really didn't know how estrogen affected the female body as far as cancer goes, as far as breast cancer goes, particularly. And so it was kind of just a normal thing that when women hit menopause, they went on estrogen. And, um, so, uh, she told me that she was entering menopause and this is why she was going to see the doctors because she needed to get some estrogen. Um, in reality, she knew something horrible was wrong. Um, and she was diagnosed at what they call the orange rind stage. I urge you not to Google those images because they're disturbing, but basically your breast looks like an orange rind with the dimples and it's, it was bright red. And so she was diagnosed in May. Um, it had been going on for a while before that. And she didn't get an appointment, uh, with the oncologist. They acted like it was no big deal, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't there with her. Um, this is still something that kind of haunts me about all of this is that she didn't tell us that it was most likely cancer. Um, and she didn't get an appointment for a couple months and that's when she officially got the cancer diagnosis. Um, and like I say, it was, it was at the orange rind stage at that point. Um, she was, uh, it's inflammatory breast cancer is kind of the worst of the worst. It, it usually happens in younger women. It usually, um, doesn't happen, uh, in, in older women. Um, but it, it, it was that I think was life altering. Um, I had quit school about a, well, a a little over a year earlier, I guess. And I was kind of ready to go back. And about that time I was, I was kind of ready to, to pick up my life where I'd left it off and, and, you know, uh, not be young and stupid anymore and go back to school and finish my degree. And here I am 20 years old, just turned 20 as a matter of fact. And, um, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm supporting my mother. I'm, I'm her sole support. Um, 
And it was, it was horrible to think about life without her. Um, at first I got into, we're going to fight this. We're going to beat this. Um, and you have to understand at that time, breast cancer was most definitely more often than not a breath, a death sentence. Um, especially inflammatory breast cancer. Um, she was diagnosed in 93 and her doctor, uh, told her that, uh, no, I take that back. I'm sorry. She's diagnosed in 94, but her doctor told her at that time, had she been diagnosed six months earlier, they would not have treated her at all. They would have simply told her to go home and make her plans. And they would have given her about six months to live. So we're kind of blessed that they did anything to her, given that she had no insurance, she had no money. Um, the county hospital was picking up the whole tab. And, um, you know, the other thing, though, is that there was two months in between her initial doctor's appointment and getting in with an oncologist. And with inflammatory breast cancer, that can make a big difference. So that's something that I'll never really know if that made a difference or not. Um, but, um, anyway, she, she fought it bravely and valiantly for four years. And then in 1998, she passed away and we expect to outlive our parents, but my mother was my very best friend. We were so codependent. It was ridiculous. Uh, when I first went away, to college, we used to each run up $500 long distance bills. That's how much we talked. Um, in fact, when she was laid off from her job, she moved from San Antonio to Fort Worth to be nearer me uh, or closer to me. So um, we were definitely sort of, I don't know, enmeshed or something, um, I think is, is the psychological term. We were super, super codependent. And when she passed away, it was very life altering. I couldn't function. And there are times that I think that a lot of my habits and um, things that I do when I'm depressed come from that time and come from the fact that she's not around still, you know, to make it better all these years later. And, um, so that changed a lot. Um, I look at that time when I say that it was life altering, like I say, um, I've almost lived half my life without her, but it's like I've lived two lives. It's like I'm on my second. Um, the older I get, the weirder it is to think of times when she was around because this life she hasn't been in. And hmm. when I think of, you know, it's hard to think of positive outcomes from something like that, but there have actually been some. I started a relay for life uh, in, in a small town, you know, suburb of Austin, um, a few, well, yeah, several years later, about, about five years later, it was like the second I could talk about it. 
I, I wanted to do something. And, um, you know, it wasn't perfect. Uh, it was me doing my best, but um, I didn't do everything correctly. Uh, but I, I did get it off the ground and, you know, helped raise uh, $45,000 for the American Cancer Society and um, who helped us tremendously when, when she was sick. They gave her a wig. They gave her a prosthesis. They, you know, had a volunteer talk to her. Um, and um, we, we had to depend on some charity uh, for, for her. Um, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, my mother was my first death. My, my only living grandparent uh, outlived her. Um, she was, I think, the first like real memorial service where I knew that person well. Um, and she was the youngest of six. She was the first of her siblings to die. Um, and it, it kind of, I think, set the stage for how I process death, how I'm able to help others in a time that nobody wants to talk to you. Um, knowing what to say and what not to say, because I've been there. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. mostly knowing what not to say. I don't think anybody ever really knows what to say. But, um, you know, there's, there's things that I've accomplished that I don't know that I would have accomplished. I probably wouldn't have gone to see a therapist had my mom been alive. Um, she had definite opinions about these things. Um, and so, you know, I, I, her sister kind of, uh, who's my godmother kind of took over mom role for me. She doesn't have any kids, so I'm her kid. I've always been her kid. Um, but you know, there's times that she'll say something to me because she's a go-getter and a doer. And, uh, I think I, I act more like her now. Um, but, but there's times that she's like, you know, your mother would be so proud of you. And I'm like, I wouldn't have done this if my mom was still here. <laughs> like this wouldn't have even been a thought. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that, that I think is the biggest change that's happened to me in my life. Well, thank you for sharing that story, Marjorie. Um, I think the loss of a parent is always, tough on the kids and as you say at that particular age you're just starting your adult life so being now fully into that adult life it, yeah I think that what you've pointed out from the book that you read and I'll put the link to that in the show notes um so if people want access to that resource um but yeah two lives makes makes total sense if your mom was alive today and healthy and well and what's what's one thing that you like what, what's one thing that you share as a tradition or something that you would want to include her on or tell her if she were still here there's so much, um, 
you know, I went back to school and got my bachelor's, uh, six years ago, I, I graduated and she wasn't there and I would have loved for her to been there. Um, there's probably hundreds of times a year that things happen and I want to tell my mom. It's not as mm -hmm. raw as it was when she first died or even a couple of years after she died. But, you know, um, Friday, I had a work situation. And, and I mean, my first thought was, I want my mom. I want to tell her about this. I want to get her take. I want her to tell yeah. me it's going to be okay. Um, I want her to say, you can always come live with me. <laughs> you know, um, I think that ultimate safety net. What do away. you think? What do you think that she would have made of this global pandemic and how it's affected the world? Like, what do you think she would have made of all of this? I don't know. I know my mother, I know my mother was extremely liberal, so she would have been yelling at the TV every time Donald Trump came on it. I know that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, and it's so funny that people that kind of sort of knew her did, don't usually know that about her. Um, but Mm -hmm. You know, she she passed away when like Bill Clinton was in office and George W. Bush was the governor of Texas. Mm -hmm. And she used to scream at the TV mm -hmm. every time George W. Bush came on it. Um, <laughs> so like like people scream <laughs> at the TV during a football game. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I think um, I think the pandemic would have the response to the pandemic would have horrified her. I think. I know all the uh, police violence would have horrified her. Um, she yeah. watched the entirety of the O.J. Simpson trial, and I remember her telling me that she thought he did it, but the police were so corrupt that there was no way they could have convicted him and rewarded them for that. They had to make a point. And, I mean, this is her talking. This isn't, you know, but she, she told me at that time. Right, right. They had to make a point. Uh, and, and like I say, she watched every minute of that trial. So, you know, where I formed opinions based on sound bites and news clips and everything, you know, she she literally watched the trial every day. And, and that's what she told me that that um, that, no, they were just too corrupt. So I think seeing it escalate uh, would have really I think the death, the death this past summer would have just. She probably would have been at the protest, honestly. And my mom wasn't really a protester, mm -hmm. but I think that would have, she would have been there. Um, my mom was very much don't make waves, but I think this past year would have had her making waves. When you think about how much you mentioned, so you mentioned that with your aunt who sort of stepped into that motherly role in your life when she says those things about how mom would be proud, but you're like, I wouldn't have done this if um, mom was still alive. When you think about that and you think back, what do you think would be different about your life today? What, how, how do you imagine life would have turned out for Marjorie if your mom had survived cancer? I think I probably would have gone back to school a lot sooner you know, because I wouldn't have spent so much time processing grief. And, 
Mm-hmm. I think uh, it took me a long time. I went to uh, a grief support group for people that lost their mothers shortly after she passed um, that the local hospice has. And I um, didn't relate to them at all. And what I was relating to was mm-hmm. more of what they were talking about their mother's spouses relating to. Um, I, you know, this is how codependent my mom and I were. So, um, I probably would have moved in with my mother during the pandemic, uh, because she would have been too worried. I think I may have had a little bit different career path because, um, I'm honestly studied and, and wanting to do what's the modern iteration of what my mom did. Um, you know, my mom was in data processing her entire career. I played with punch cards as a kid. That's how old I am. Um, <laughs> and, um, I don't know that she would have, uh, that she would have encouraged that to tell you the truth. I think she would have wanted something better for me. Um, just because I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the misogyny in that world still kind of exists and a lot of the battles that she faced still exists. And, um, it's funny, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I don't really, now that as much as I've, you know, as much as we talked about how, you know, you think I'm a little psychic and all that stuff. Um, when it comes to me and future predictions and, you know, even just the question, like, where do you see yourself in five years? I don't like, I just, it's a complete blank for me. Like I, I don't, I've never been able to really see much of a future. Not that I think there's not going to be one, but it's just, I'm really bad at predicting things for myself, uh, far better at it for other people. Um, I read a really interesting article uh, just two days ago. This really, it was in, uh, I'll I'll try and remember to post the link. It was in a publication called Foreign Policy, but it was about expert predictions and how accurate they are. And they used COVID as a case study. So uh, it was super interesting to talk about how experts predicted certain outcomes based on whatever. And it turned out that the accuracy of expert predictions for what was going to happen as things uh, progressed with the um, with COVID as an illness and with government response, with how the public would react to being locked up, all these predictions. It turned out that their accuracy was not great and was almost equivalent to just a lay person's predictions of the future. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, because I think human beings have this tendency to really trust their expertise and then to trust the expertise of experts, hence experts. Um, there's this sort of like built-in thing where we're like, it must be true because I think it's true and I've chosen to believe this person is right. And so it must be right. And it's, you know, it's like that confidence in our belief systems. So when I hear you saying like, but when it comes to me, I don't know. It's like it's such a beautiful thing to hear because I think all of us as humans could dial our certainty down just a little bit. Um, pattern recognition is great. and Planning for the future is great. But knowing that we only control 10% of any given day is also an important thing to know. So I don't know. All of that is to just to say um, 
There, I mean, there are super predictors. If you read the article, you'll see there are people who are great at predicting outcomes at a much higher percentage. Um, but the way they do it is different than the way most of us do it, including experts. Um, so, you know, all of that is to say, I think it's actually kind of a beautiful thing to look forward and have it be a blank slate in many ways to know that any number of things are possible. Yeah, I started to read that article and I had opinions about some of the things they said. And so I kind of stopped, but which I know is, you know, totally, (laughs) totally what you're saying we do. But um, (laughs) I think this is why anytime somebody is like, you know, well, you tend to know what's going to happen or something like that. I'm always very careful to say, no, I'm just a super logical, rational person. I, I truly don't believe that anybody can predict the future. Um, or we'll know what's going to happen. Yeah. There's too many. Um, there's too many different outcomes. I, I can tell you the two or three that I think is most likely. But I think some of those predictions did mm. actually happen. I think that you know. I think the one that that I uh, that I read that I was just like, yeah, I don't know about this. Uh, was when they were saying that um, experts predicted that people's mental health would suffer. And, you know, I don't know. I don't, I didn't get as far as seeing how they, you know, how they compiled all the data and, you know, and what data they used and all this stuff. I think some of these things, they cherry pick their data. But um, most of the people I know. That's also kind of the nature of analyzing data, though. Yeah, well, it shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> ideally, you're supposed to just take your data and accept the outcome it gives you. But I do think that, uh, you know. Wait, what? I know. Um, but I mean, this is why we have so many problems with data predicting outcomes right now is because, you know, for instance, there needs to be diversity in the people that write the algorithms because, you know, we can see the disasters that have happened by having white men largely mm-hmm. responsible for the algorithms. Um, you know, then you get face recognition that doesn't recognize a lot of faces. Um, and um, anyway, but point being, back to my, back to what I was going to say, I think the one that I really took issue with <laughs> is when they said that uh, it's been statistically insignificant that people's mental health has worsened during the pandemic. And the reason I take issue with that is because just about everybody I know has had, you know, mental health issues that have cropped up or, and, you know, it could just be anecdotal evidence. I recognize that, but Mm. it's interesting when all the stories I read or all the, you know, friends I talk to or all the, you know, people I deal with is like, you know, um, I wish I could hug somebody again. And if I could just do that one thing, you know, it would make all of this worthwhile. Um, I think it's very real. So I, I, that's when kind of, I stopped reading that article. (laughs) I was like, but wait, fair um, enough. I wonder, I think, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, those of you who read it, I'll be interested to hear if you read it, you know, by the time 
this episode, by the time you're listening to this episode, that article is like super old news anyway. Um, but I am going to post the link because I'd be curious to hear people's responses. Um, if like you, they're like, this article doesn't pass the sniff test. Or if like me, they're like, cool, weird. I don't know. So, you know, I'll post the link. Um, so Marjorie, as we're bringing this conversation to a close, what is it that you would like listeners to walk away with? What's your, what are your final thoughts here? Um, I think my final thoughts are to try to look for the good in any change or as a result from any change, because I think there are positive outcomes to be had, no matter how horrific the change is. Thank you so much for being here. It's awesome to get to have this conversation um, in a totally different way than you and I normally interact. And I think your thoughts today have been really insightful. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. <laughs> Processing the loss of a loved one is part of the cycle of living here on planet Earth. If you manage to live all your days experiencing no loss, well, it means either you've died too soon or you've lived your life in exceeding isolation. And yet, despite how common this experience is as a human on planet Earth, the effects of losing a loved one can be profound. And certainly our view of the world changes as a result. Also true, each of us mourns and processes our grief in our own unique way as we reconcile our new reality with the reality that we thought we were in for, what we expected to happen, what we think should or could have happened. That resolution of cognitive dissonance differs from person to person and circumstance to circumstance. I will never forget my mother's confusion and frustration when the people around her who loved and cared about her encouraged her to get over the loss of her husband who had only been gone six months. Not only was she not ready to be over him and to move on, but their well-intended gesture came off as stabby, selfish, and judgmental. I'm going to go ahead and guess that they just didn't know how to process their discomfort with how she experienced grief. So I will leave you with this. I believe firmly that there is no right or wrong when it comes to how we grieve, nor is it our place to determine what someone else's grief should look like. If you know someone who is grieving, I would encourage you to be patient. If they're talking, listen and know that grief isn't a problem that needs to be solved. So you can most likely hold your helpful advice unless directly asked. I want to hear from you. Have thoughts, feelings, sarcastic remarks, or a story to share based on listening to this episode? Help me keep the conversation going. Join the Facebook group, www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash change hub. Thank you, Marjorie, for being vulnerable and sharing your story. Special thanks go to my family for their love, support, and patience. To all of the amazing Changed Podcast Patreon page members who I couldn't do this without. Art of Change Skills for Life and Patreon member producer, Dr. Rick Kirshner. Thank you to you for listening to The Changed Podcast. I'm Aidan Nepom, and I wish you the kind of experiences in life you're excited to tell stories about. <laughs>